Voices for Justice is a podcast that uses adult language and discusses sensitive and potentially triggering topics, including violence, abuse, and murder. This podcast may not be appropriate for younger audiences. All parties are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Some names have been changed or omitted per their request or for safety purposes. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Sarah Turney, and this is Voices for Justice. Last time on Voices for Justice, we went over the timeline of May 17, 2001, the day Alyssa disappeared. And we heard firsthand accounts from Alyssa's friend Jessica and our father about what they remember from that day. In this episode, we are going to begin looking at the events that occurred immediately after Alyssa was gone, as well as the beginning of the investigation into her disappearance. Although he didn't express a lot of concern about Alyssa's safety when reporting her missing to the police, our father began calling Alyssa's friends with a lot of urgency about the danger she could be in, and he immediately asked me to create a missing persons flyer. In his 2009 interview with ABC 2020, he explains his state of mind during this time. When the interviewer states, it must have been terrifying for you. Our father responds, Yeah, knowing my daughter better than anybody else did, it scared the living hell out of me. So I started, uh, you know, calling everybody I could call. And then calling her brothers, which I couldn't get a hold of, and telling them, Look, we got a problem. We need to get everybody down here now, and we gotta find Alyssa. Because she's really done something stupid. And we need to, uh, see if we can't find her. But despite this statement about gathering everybody he could to search for her, Alyssa's friend Janae said that her mother actually offered to put together a search party, and our father turned her down. I I vividly remember the phone call that your dad made to my house when Alyssa went missing. And my mom adored Alyssa. And so he wanted to specifically talk to me, and my mom would not let that happen. I I had to sit in the living room. Her and I were on the couch together. She was holding the phone and he was on speakerphone. And she told him, I'm not going to let you talk to her without hearing what you have to say. Good for her. I want to know what happened. Where is Alyssa? What is going on? Where is she? Yeah. And, you know, he started asking me questions about the last time I saw her. And the last time that I saw her was, you know, after Stacy's funeral, we kind of hung out there for a little while and chatted it up. But other than that, Her and I really had lost touch because you guys had moved away. When he called, he started asking me questions about if I had talked to her, if I had seen her, if she told me anything, if I knew where she was. And, you know, my answer was no, I hadn't talked to her. I have no idea. And my mom chimed in and, you know, my mom was friends with all of the people that lived on our block. All of our neighbors were her friends and she would, you know, she offered very rapidly, you know, I can get 10 people together right now. We'll go search for her. We'll, we'll start a a search party. We will find her. And he was like, Oh no, no, that's not necessary. Um, the cops are, you know, the cops are going to take care of it. I I called the police and the police are they're They're opening up a missing persons report for her. They're going to do it. Oh, interesting. Cause do you know the way she was reported? Did, have you ever heard that? No. So he reported her as a runway right at 11 p.m. at night and yes. said, I know where she is. He basically said, my 17-year-old daughter ran away to her aunt's house in California. I just wanted to let you guys know. So, like, yeah, no, there, there was no missing persons case. It was just runaway, you know, guy knows where his daughter is. We're not going to look into it. The police never even came to the house. Yeah, they never came to my house either. Yeah. My mom was waiting. Yeah. My, you know, my mom would have gladly talked to them. My mom, you know... So I mean, what did your mom say when he was like, no, no, we're good. No, don't search for her. I don't even remember her exact words. Gosh, sure, it was yeah, 20 years ago. Yeah. But, you know, um, I think she just left it. She clearly just left it alone. Our father also began asking Alyssa's friends if they would get together with him to hand out her flyers. But he never followed through. And despite getting these calls from our father in a panic, those closest to Alyssa did not share the same fear for her safety. In fact, it seems that Charity, Jessica, and Katie were all relieved that Alyssa seemed to have gotten away from our home. Did my dad talk to you that day or did he talk to your parents? He got my mom. I think I was at work. Um, and so I got home and my mom just said, you know, have you talked to or seen Alyssa? And I was like, no, why? And she's like, well, you know, I just got off the phone with Mike and... 
he was giving us a call, you know, looking for Alyssa to see if she, she'd been here or if we had spoken with her. And I was like, no, I haven't talked to her at all. You know, and she said, well, she's run away. Yeah. When you're like, good. Which I get. I actually, looking back on the time, I had a very big pit in my stomach. But yeah, my head was telling me, well, good, finally she got out. Yeah. It was also telling me, you know, I'll hear from her then in a few days. She's not, you know, she's free and she's mobile, so I'll hear from her. Exactly. That's what you think. You don't think that they're kidnapped or in trouble. You think, oh, yeah, my friend would totally do that. They'll be back in a few days. Yeah, or, yeah, she'll get a hold of somebody. It'll be okay. Yeah. The day, the day after she disappeared, he called and said that he was going to print up some flyers and then he was going to gather people to hand them out. And then they never heard from him. Yeah, that never happened. I mean, we printed flyers, but he never got people to There were a couple of flyers. Yeah. So after I didn't hear from him for a couple of days, I was like, he doesn't want to find her. So, I don't, I don't know if I've even told anyone this, but like when she, when she quote unquote ran away, your dad called me, and he said he was frantic, and he said Alyssa ran away. Um, I need help putting out flyers, and of course I was scared for her, but I was actually like kind of happy for her. Because he he had said the thing about I think she ran away to be with her I think it's her aunt in California, mm-hmm. um, and in my brain I was like oh my god I'm so happy that she's gotten away from you, <laughs> and that that was like I wasn't super scared about her being gone because I was so happy for her getting out of the situation because she was so unhappy there. And although my siblings and I didn't express the same relief that Alyssa was gone, we certainly weren't panicking like our father appeared to be. As far as I know, none of us went into high alert or even aided in the efforts to distribute her flyer at first. We all saw how much she disliked our father, and we really thought she had just had enough of the rules and left. But we all thought that she would be back. In addition to these calls about gathering people to hand out flyers and forming search parties that never happened, I found a police report outlining some interesting phone conversations our father engaged in around this time. The report reads, The next recorded conversation is an outgoing call from Mike Turney to Alyssa's boyfriend, John. Mike again requests that John write a letter. He says he doesn't want to badmouth Alyssa, but that she was too trusting. He wants John in his letter to emphasize that Alyssa was naive and that she had a trusting nature. He says he is worried because he has not heard from her. Mike mentions that Alyssa was always fascinated by tattooed and pierced men. The next recorded conversation is between Mike Turney and an unknown female. He speaks about Alyssa at great length. He says that Alyssa does stupid things. He says that she would talk to anyone and wander away as a child. He mentions that when she was six or seven, she ate a mushroom endangering herself. Mike says that you could almost see victim stamped on her forehead. Mike describes his searches to locate her and says that he is a tenacious, loving parent. The next segment is a phone call from Mike Turney to the Phoenix Police Department. He leaves a message saying he has a question about a guy at Jack in the Box that he thinks took Alyssa to California. He also wants information about sex offenders in the area. The next segment is a recorded phone message to the Glendale Police Department. Mike talks about Alyssa being missing and mentions that she had relatives who lived in Glendale who were marijuana users. The next sentence has a word omitted, which I will read as blank, but if I had to guess, I would say the word is probably molested or abused. So, Mike also mentions that Alyssa was blank by her uncle when she was nine years old. He says that this was a relative of our mother's. Next is a recorded incoming call from Barbara at Paradise Valley High School. Mike discusses that Alyssa ran away. He says that he would like to be notified if a request is made for her school records. Mike discusses Alyssa at length, saying that she was easily misled and addicted to marijuana. Mike says that Alyssa's boyfriend was dominating. He also says that she complained that daddy was too hard on her. 
He says Alyssa talked about running away the summer before her disappearance. Mike mentions that he is, quote, worried to death about her. He says that police would not help him get the phone number from which she called. The next segment is a recorded outgoing call from Mike Turney to a young female named Julie. Mike requests that Julie write a letter for him about Alyssa. He states that Alyssa is still missing and he wants her to describe how easily misled she was. He mentions that Alyssa has ADD and he requests that Julie mention that Alyssa was not happy with her boyfriend John. Mike repeatedly requests that Julie mention how endangered and naive Alyssa was. He says she almost got herself killed many times. Julie asks how John is holding up. Mike says that Alyssa and he had a big fight on the day before Alyssa went missing. Mike also says that Alyssa came from a long line of women who never graduated high school and would get pregnant young. Mike says that he is very worried about Alyssa. Julie says that she will try to write something up. And at the bottom of this report, there's a note from the detective that says, It should be noted that I have not yet identified Julie. Although it appears that her father was attempting to contact anyone he could about Alyssa being gone, he actually gave me Alyssa's cell phone almost right away. Not for me to monitor or to assist in communication with her friends, but for me to have. I want to believe that he asked me to tell him if anyone texted or called about Alyssa, but I can't remember for sure. But I do have a clear memory of sitting on our back porch that summer listening and re-listening to Alyssa's voicemail greeting over and over again. I was missing her so much, but also torn about deleting this off of my newly acquired cell phone. My first cell phone, now ironically adorned with a cover that she had actually gifted me to use on the cell phone that I shared with our father. It was pink and clear and fit her Nokia phone beautifully, but I was so torn. I think a part of me knew how precious this voicemail greeting was, that maybe deep down, I really was scared for her. But at that time, I wouldn't allow myself to feel it. I knew she would be back. So I recorded over her greeting with my own, ready for the punishment that was sure to ensue when she returned. But, despite all my anguish over this, our father would soon switch phone carriers and not keep the phone number for any type of monitoring anyway. Four days after Alyssa went missing, her last paycheck from her job at Jack in the Box for the amount of $285.74 was automatically deposited into her bank account, making her new total balance $1,866.24. Her bank account remained untouched. And on May 24, 2001, exactly one week after Alyssa was gone, our father answers an incoming phone call at 5.01 a.m. that lasts for 29.3 seconds. And this is what he told ABC 2020 happened that day. The interviewer says to him, about a week later, you get a phone call. And our father responds, It was a brief phone call. I was asleep. I hadn't slept at all in that length of time. Uh, it's, you know, because you're searching for Alyssa. It was Alyssa. She was agitated. Uh, like she was picking up right where we left off. She was wanting to be left alone, and, uh... The interviewer interjects and asks, What did she say? Well, it... The conversation was kind of scrambled. It, uh, sort of was a one-way to a certain ex You know, it, it's... Is this you, Alyssa? You know, you make sure it's Alyssa, because the... The voice sounded a bit different. But then again, I could realize it was Alyssa. And then, uh, she basically... It's... It's as if she pulled the phone away from her mouth, as I recall. And she, uh, said a few cuss words and stuff about leave me alone. And then the phone went dead. That's basically how I remember it. But it was mainly criticizing me for what I had done. But I thought it was strange that she had called. Maybe she wanted to come home. And so that's when I panicked even worse. And I jumped out of bed because, uh, you know, what's that star 69 thing where you dial the last number called? Well, instead of doing that, which was the appropriate thing to do, but half asleep and medicated really heavily, I jumped up because I thought maybe she'd call close to the house. Because with my background, that's sometimes what people do. So I uh, ran around the phones by the house, and, and by the time I got back, my brother-in-law had called me, so I couldn't punch the last call waiting, you know, waiting to get back into it. You might be wondering, where's the audio from this call, or at least the transcript? Remember, he had been recording every phone call going out and every phone call coming into the home for almost 30 years at this point. But somehow, 
this extremely vital phone call was not recorded. He continues in that same interview to state, When Alyssa called, it was like 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning. And, you know, if I don't reset the tape, because it's a, I just, I don't have a lot of money. It's a cheap tape. So if it doesn't reset, then uh, I have to go do it in the morning, reset it, turn the tape over. To clarify, this machine only recorded while there was an active call. It was not a machine that was recording continuously and would have possibly run out of tape overnight. So that tape would have only run out under two conditions. The first being if you were on a phone call in which you would hear the loud click of the tape switching from record mode to off like an older cassette player. The second possibility is that an incoming voicemail filled the remainder of the tape, causing it to run out while no one was around to hear it. Both are valid possibilities, but this makes me wonder, when was the last time this tape was checked? Was he even waiting for a call from Alyssa? In addition to the audio from the phone call, people began to wonder about the video footage from the day Alyssa disappeared. We spent so much time discussing how extensive this surveillance was on Alyssa before she left. We learned about secret cameras and possible secret audio devices. So where is the footage from the day Alyssa disappeared? Where is the video of him returning with Alyssa from lunch? The video of their fight from the internal camera? Where is the video of Alyssa leaving home to run away to California? There has to be something, right? Well, in that same interview with ABC 2020, our father says, quote, There was nothing on the tape. They were told that. They were both told that. I saved it and said, do you want me to give you this tape? A detective told me no. He said, no, man, this is just a runaway. I don't need all that stuff. They were told there was nothing on the tape, which made me kind of wonder, how did Alyssa get out of the house without being recorded? But then again, because the tape recorder was on as soon as I left that house, I would turn it on. It was only an eight-hour VHS that I had. It only lasted eight hours. So I would turn it on, and that particular day, I saved the tape, especially after we found out that Alyssa had run away. So I saved all that stuff, because I'm an ex-cop. I know exactly what I needed to save. I was running my own investigation myself. But something interesting I found out through my research for this podcast is that our father supposedly showed this tape to our brother John. In his interview with police, John says it showed nothing. Quote, I saw it. It showed him arriving or whatever, pulling out. But I never saw Alyssa in there. He just showed me the time that he was going to pick up my sister. Never showed anyone in the camera. In this interview with police, my brother makes no mention of a date or a timestamp on that video. John also mentions that Alyssa would have known to avoid the cameras. But then the detective brings up a good point. Would an angry teenager who stole their father's money and left a note outlining a plan to leave really take the time to avoid cameras on their way out? The detective wasn't so sure. And honestly, neither am I. But since according to our father, there was absolutely nothing on that tape, he taped over it. A man who was undeniably paranoid about being accused of abusing his daughter. A man who retained surveillance from the 1970s, taped over the video surveillance from the day his daughter disappeared just for the sake of reusing the tape. Why not retain this video, even if it showed nothing? If just to help us understand what happened or didn't happen that day. Another interesting factor about the surveillance from Alyssa's last day is that in other instances, Our father is quoted as saying that a tape actually never existed from that day. And he told my aunts both stories. Here's what Teresa remembers. First of all, he told us that, said that there was no recording that day. He had forgotten to turn the cameras on or recorder on. Right. And then it was, oh yeah, there was a recording, but there was nothing on it. So at this point, despite years of cultivating surveillance systems just to watch Alyssa, literally in our father's own words to monitor her because she had been discussing running away, we have nothing. Nothing from the day she went missing and nothing from the day she supposedly called. We have countless tapes of her at Jack in the Box, of her fighting with her boyfriend, making out with a boy on the couch, audio of her from when she was 14 telling a boy she was bisexual, but absolutely nothing from the two most important days in this investigation. After receiving this early morning phone call, our father attempts to get the phone number it was dialed from. 
However, he states that the phone company is uncooperative and that the police also refuse to help. So, he begins filing motions to sue the phone company to release the number. But while he is going through all this litigation, he begins making trips to California to search for Alyssa. And according to his cell phone records, he begins making calls to a California cell phone number. The police report reads, The bill also documents roaming charges during June 2001. And where there should be a number in this next sentence to explain how many phone calls he made is just left blank. It's not omitted, it's just simply not in the report. So, the next sentence reads, There are over phone calls made to a California cell phone number. These calls originate from different California regions, including Los Angeles, Montebello, Pasadena, Ontario, and Riverside. It should be noted that this is the region where the reported call from Alyssa came on May 24, 2001. Detective Anderson is conducting research to determine the source of this call. It will be documented in a future supplement. However, if there was a future supplement to accompany this report, I was unable to locate it. But I have to imagine whoever was on the other end of those phone calls has to have a piece to this puzzle that we don't. Around this time, our father registers Alyssa as a runaway with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. The police review a paper form filled out by him in the following report. But before I get into this next report, I want to take a second and explain something that he mentions. Our father has made many claims that one of the reasons Alyssa, quote, ran away was because she would have to take the Ames test. What he's referring to is a new testing system in Arizona that was implemented around that time. What this required was for the students to take an extra test in order to graduate from high school. However, I remember this test because it was implemented the year I was supposed to graduate, not the year Alyssa was supposed to graduate. Although they may have been giving out practice tests for the Ames, they did not count towards graduation when Alyssa was in school. So again, Although he states that the Ames test is a reason for her running away, this was not implemented until 2006, a whole five years after Alyssa was gone. But with that being said, the following police report reads, Among the paperwork is a pre-printed form titled Missing Children Help Center. It appears that Mike Turney filled out this form. He lists her as a runaway. In the identifying mark section, he lists a scar on her chin. There is no mention of a broken nose. On the form, there's a section titled, quote, Description of Abducting Person Slash Parent. Mike Turney puts his own information here and then crosses it out. It appears he filled this in in error. In the Details of Disappearance section, Mike Turney writes, Alyssa is an ADD student, tested and identified. She has no criminal record, but has all the characteristics of a short-term memory poor test scores, easily influenced, etc. Within the last eight months, she has added a job, full-time boyfriend, and additional testing with the Ames. In her own words, quote, her world had become too complex. We had been fighting over ditching the Ames test, her not getting enough rest, the peers she hung out with, a possessive boyfriend, marijuana, and her giving out the home phone number, and or taking numbers of strangers at her job at Jack in the Box. We also had an amicable relationship, as witnessed by many friends. We had argued over her visiting her aunt in California because they use marijuana. I gave in to her being allowed to go. But set a one-week period. Alyssa was in need of a break from my tutoring her, my parenting, taking her to and from work, her boyfriend, and her job. I left to pick her sister up from school. When I returned, she was gone. Leaving the enclosed note, taking money, left her cell phone, and took one week's clothing. On May 24, 2001, I received a 20 to 30 second phone call. She was still angry. I am attempting to get the phone number she called from, which sounded like a public phone. On July 3rd, 2001, our father receives the records from the phone call placed on May 24th after successfully suing the phone company. However, the location from which the call was made is not given. 
So he says he calls the number repeatedly until a man answers and tells him that he is indeed calling a public payphone and that it's located in Riverside, California. He then gives our father directions to the location. So our father takes another trip to California, and this time, he takes me with. From what I can gather from the police records, I believe that I went with him to Riverside, California from July 5th to July 7th. We stayed at a Best Western that was supposedly close to my Aunt Lynette's house. I remember that we went to the mall and to the beach with some flyers, but I also remember spending a lot of time alone in our hotel room just chatting on instant messenger. At this time, my father stated that he was going to that gas station to take pictures and speak with the employees. Despite it being less than two weeks since that phone call, no security footage of Alyssa making the call or even being at the gas station was recovered. And there is no statement from any employee about seeing a girl that matches Alyssa's description. But it appears that he was actually spying on my Aunt Lynette at this time also. He went to her home and documented the people coming in and out. One very memorable aspect of this trip for me is how we got to California. My father said that he wanted to rent a cool car that would maybe attract Alyssa. And despite us having traveled to California at least a dozen times before this trip, he also had another reason for renting this car. He said that he wanted to live out his dream of driving up the Pacific Coast Highway in a brand new convertible. So that's exactly what he did. And overall, this trip to California definitely felt a lot more like a vacation than any type of search for Alyssa. And of course, the strange behavior does not stop there. It was pretty soon after this trip that my father offered for me to move into the master bedroom. He told me that he wanted me to have my own bathroom, so I wasn't walking around the house in a towel, and he wouldn't be accused of sexually abusing me. It's important to note that the master bedroom housed the monitor for our surveillance cameras meaning that I now had complete control over all of the cameras in the home, two outside and the camera in the vent. But since Alyssa was gone, I asked my father to take that camera down from the vent, and he did. But not only that, he actually bought me a device that would beep if it detected a hidden camera, just so I could know that he wasn't spying on me. As absolutely insane as this sounds, saying it now as an adult... At that time, all I thought about was how cool it would be to have the master bedroom, and of course I took him up on the offer. But looking back, I can see how strange this was. And in fact, in my meeting with him from 2017, I asked him about this. The overbearing, the surveillance, the contracts, the rules. The surveillance... Do you not remember me asking you to take the camera out of the vent and then you gave me the camera detector? If that was for the safety of your family because our RV got stolen, why would that end when Alyssa left? It didn't end when Alyssa left. Then why were you so lax with the cameras and then I had the cameras in my room because you moved me to the master? Because you started thinking and being paranoid of, I don't want you watching me all the time, Dad. And I said, fine, Sarah. You put them in your room now mm-hmm. because you need to do the surveillance because the fact we have had a lot of vandalism. We have okay, had a lot you, of things You're trusting a 13-year-old to do that surveillance for you? I don't know, Sarah. You mean my stupidity of trusting my daughter who I thought had more common sense than I, I did? This episode of Voices for Justice is brought to you by Quince. The weather is getting warmer, which means it's time to put away all the sweaters and pants and say hello to shorts and t-shirts. I absolutely was looking to update my wardrobe without spending a fortune, and I went right back to Quince for that. I personally don't love trendy clothes that I have to replace every few months. I am looking to build my solid core collection of essentials, and with the huge selection at Quince, I can do that. They have premium European linen dresses, blouses and shorts from 30 bucks, washable silk tops, they have jewelry, and so much more. One thing I really love about Quince, too, is that they only work with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. And they only use premium fabrics and finishes, so you're not cutting any corners when it comes to quality. I've really been trying to play with pairing casual with more upscale pieces. So recently, I just matched a silk skirt with this black tee that I just love and fits really, really well. 
I think it came together pretty cute. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com justice for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's quince.com justice to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com justice. This episode of Voices for Justice is brought to you by June's Journey. I'm pretty sure everyone here loves a good mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. You get to step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. You engage your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. So what does that mean? Well, June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game. Essentially, you find hidden clues and uncover this mystery. But it's also more than that. You can customize your own luxurious estate island, you can join a detective club, and put your skills to the test in a detective league. I like that you can play totally alone, or if you want to play with other people, you can do that too. I find myself playing June's Journey in little breaks during the day, or most frequently at night before I go to bed. Whether you're craving a good mystery or just looking for an escape, I really do recommend June's Journey. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. And you might be wondering, what was I doing that summer while my father was making all these trips? Again, I was only 12, just turned 13, but I was living my best life. I didn't see any of this as strange. I thought my dad was pretty cool. I had the master bedroom, my own cell phone, and no one was really checking on me while he was gone, so I could basically do whatever I wanted. And with him being gone all the time on these trips to California, I took full advantage of the situation. I actually became very close with a set of sisters, the same sisters that I walked home with on the day Alyssa went missing. Their father worked nights, so each night I would get a ride to their house after he left for work. We'd party all night and I would go home around 6 a.m. before he got back from work in the morning. I'd sleep all day, still in Alyssa's bed, wake up around 5 p.m., and do it all over again. At first, I didn't do much of anything at these parties, still very afraid to do all of the crazy things my father told me Alyssa had been doing. While most of them smoked weed and drank alcohol, I'd stay up smoking cigarettes, drinking coffee, and watching music videos while I watched my friends clown around like idiots. And although I wasn't too interested in the drugs and alcohol they were experimenting with yet, it was a slippery slope that would eventually spiral out of control. And I would end up doing things that were so much worse than anything Alyssa ever did. We will continue to discuss my escalation of rebellious behavior as the timeline progresses. However, it's important to note that it began instantly after Alyssa was gone and it was met with almost no reaction from our father. While Alyssa wasn't even allowed to walk alone at night, and while our father was making her friend's parents sign contracts about there being no boys in the sleepover she was attending, I was already running free with boys that were so much older than I was, and staying out all night with no monitoring from him. But looking back now, I know I was hurting. And if I'm being totally honest, I was mad at Alyssa. Here's a clip of me talking to my childhood best friend, Renee. She grew up with both of us and was really there through it all. So we sat down, had a few drinks, and talked for over five hours about everything. Well, my whole point is, like, I I never really talked about her after she left, I yeah. feel like. And now I think there's all probably all sorts of reasons for that. But back in the day, I mean, it's true that I don't think I knew. And that summer, I changed so much and, like, wore all of Alyssa's clothes. I remember you wearing her clothes. I do remember that. I'm wondering, I mean, like, I don't know. You probably can't even pull memory of how you were processing it. Because, no. like, don't, do you feel like there was some, like, part of you was pissed off at her because you believed that she was alive and she left you? Yeah. 
Absolutely. A thousand percent. Because I believe what my dad said. You know yeah. what I mean? That, that she left and that she was just mad about his rules and wanted to start a new life. And I was so mad at her. Because mm-hmm. I had this, you know, abandonment complex. You know, mm-hmm. my mom died when I was young. All my brothers moved out, which I felt abandoned by that. And now Alyssa. Yeah. You know what I mean? Which is also why I clung to my dad so hard after that. He was literally all I had left. Although I was angry and felt abandoned by Alyssa, I was still confident that she would be back. But not everyone was so sure. My aunts became very suspicious of our father's possible involvement with Alyssa's disappearance almost immediately. And then probably the last time I talked to him was, well, when Alyssa ran away, when he called and said Alyssa ran away. But, you know, the the thing then is I wasn't paying as much attention probably as I could have been because my dad had just died. So I was, my dad was everything. He was the world to me. And, you know, I mean, and it was just, you know, having just gone through that, it was just like, he, Mike was the last person that I ever wanted to talk to. And I felt like when, when he was talking to me, he was lying through his teeth anyway. Because I called Lynette and I said, what the fuck is going on? And she, you know, then she told me, I said, he... He never has called me about anything. Why would he call me and get all, telling me all these details about everything, you know, from her, you know, money and the car keys and the note, you know, all this stuff and her not taking anything with her, you know, and all this stuff. And then later finding out that he's told different things to different people. But these discussions about my father's possible involvement with Alyssa's disappearance did not just stay in the family. My Aunt Teresa outwardly expressed these concerns to the police immediately. And this is the point in the timeline when we meet our first detective from the Phoenix Police Department, Detective Schoenfelder. But honestly, I don't know much about this detective. And 18 years later... I couldn't even confirm his first name. There is no public record of a Detective Schoenfelder working Alyssa's case. In fact, the public records I received from the police have a three-year gap between our father reporting Alyssa missing in 2001 and when the records resume in 2004. There's not even a report of our father reporting the phone call from California, to which we have proof that he absolutely did. But Teresa really tried to instill urgency in this detective that something could be wrong. However, he didn't seem to put much weight into her words. In all fairness, PD was not working for us. The very first officer I ever spoke to was Schoenfeld, and that's why I called him the day I found out Elizabeth was missing. And I called him to see what was happening to get some idea of what was going on and by that time of course I'm here and he wouldn't give me anything. Really? I'm not doing anything. I mean he wouldn't have any I said to him, I said to him, you know, I just I'm trying to find out what's happening with this case with my niece. And he he basically told me, Well we're everything we're we're doing is we're talking with the dad. We're talking with the dad. We're talking I said, you know I, and he told me, he said, well, he said, Mr. Turney's already told me that you don't, that you and your family don't have a fair liking to him or, or opinion of him. And so then you're going to make up stuff about him. Oh, just and like CPS, was, all those preemptive warnings. Yeah, exactly. You know, having worked a teen runaway program, the way he went about it is absolutely, completely out of character for anybody who has a runaway. Anybody who doesn't run away. My dad or the detective? Your dad. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, people, the way she was reported, everything. Go, Look, my daughter ran away, and here's what we got. The police come out, and they take a report. Well, none of that happened. No, and he and would have like, known to fight for that. like. Sure. Yeah. So he set it up. And like I said, when you read, and I'm pounded as the people who keep questions, they well, we got to go. The note came after a conversation she had with my sister to come to California to spend the summer. Right. That's exactly so. I'm sure when this idea first came up, 
Alyssa's got a boyfriend, she's got a job, she's got her friends, it's summer, I'm out of school. I would have probably argued with it at first as well. Yeah. And said, yeah, no, I'm not going. No, absolutely. So, and to there, be fair, like, we weren't the, comfortable with Lynette at that point. You know what I mean? Like, it would have... Well, exactly. Yeah. We had been... And, and I think, I truly believe that that was your dad's plan, was I'm setting this up so that I can look at these kids and go, look, see, they won't take... Well, he expected that after eight years of nothing, and then he's out of the blue, follow up after eight years ago. Yeah, I need you to take one of these kids because she's a problem now. I don't think he expected anybody in my family to go, yes, you're seven. Right. And we would have, any one of us would have, but he didn't expect that. And my, you know, again, I worked a runaway program for three years. There's, there was too much that just didn't make sense about somebody who was planning to run away. Why would you leave your keys and your cell phone? There's not a girl on the planet that's not going to take a hairbrush and her cell phone. Right. Oh, and her favorite jewelry and her makeup that she wore every day. If I'm running away for good, I'm taking my stuff. Yeah. What else am I going to wear? I'm going to wear the same outfit every single day? How is that going to... I didn't take any money other than the supposed $300. I have no evidence of that either. None of it. From my perspective as a professional... None of it made sense, ever. And, and I said, wherever Alyssa is, that's where that tape is. Because that's just how those kinds of people operate. That tape's not separate from her. Yeah, I, I don't know. There was this, his way of evading certain questions or certain conversations, his way to evade it, to flip it back on you. Again, very narcissistic behavior. Mm-hmm. Is, is to flip this around and make you the crazy person. Yeah. Um, and so I've had, I have several friends, of course, again, I worked in mental health for eight years before I started doing what I do now. And, and, and I've had several of my, when, when we went and did, I was working for that agency when we did the video um, with 2020. And looked at it and said, oh my God, you know, how can they not even suspect me? have something to do with this. And, I mean, these are people that are therapists and counselors and licensed to make these kinds of, draw these conclusions, I guess. But, um, yeah, it's, he's, he's, he's good. I clearly don't understand Phoenix PD, but I fully am not surprised just based on how Schoenfeld acted with us when we first made contact with him. I drove to Phoenix. I drove to the Phoenix Police Department and asked to see him, and he refused to see me. But while Teresa was convinced that our father had something to do with Alyssa's disappearance, like he had mentioned in his letter, our father began what he called his own investigation. On July 9th, 2001, he writes a letter to the Columbia County Sheriff's Office in Oregon. This is where our mother's brother and his wife, Lori, lived at the time. It reads, To whom it may concern, this information is being provided for the benefit of my daughter Alyssa's welfare if she made it to her Uncle Kevin and Aunt Lori Farners at, and he gives them the address in Oregon. The handwritten information is for police officers only. Alyssa is an identified ADD child in school. She has consistently displayed a personality with traits of being easily influenced and misled. Her behavior is determined by whom she is with. This mandated that I scrutinize her activities and with whom. Out of my six children, she is the only child I have had multiple conflicts over her usage of marijuana, the last being several weeks before she left home. Alyssa has been threatening to leave home for over a year due to our conflicts, the constant troubles with the educators pertaining to her ADD program, the pressures of her first job, and a dominant boyfriend, all of which made her world far too complex to deal with. I saw this, but failed to take actions to reduce it soon enough. 
She had been talking about going to California for some time. Alyssa left home on May 17, 2001, leaving a note that she was going to California. The Phoenix PD were called, whereupon a report was filed and then assigned to Detective Schoenfelder. She called home on May 24, 2001. I was not able to obtain the phone number from which she called, because Arizona does not include endangered runaways as a part of their clearinghouse powers to assist a parent in searching for their missing child. And the phone company denied my pleas for information. My investigation consisted of calling phone numbers she had, meeting with one of her boyfriends, passing out flyers, searching the area, and staking out suspected friends that might harbor her. The flyers only produced one possible sighting. With a court order, I learned that she called from Riverside, California. This location is approximately 60 miles from another aunt in Torrance, California. He then proceeds to provide our Aunt Lynette's address. I traveled to Riverside, California to continue my search. The local California Highway Patrol, Riverside PD, and Moreno City PD were given flyers, as well as my searching the area with pictures and flyers for a mere two days. Out of the many people I talked to in the area the police told me that the teens hang out, only one person thought he might have seen her, but was uncertain due to so much time having passed. On July 7, 2001, I traveled to Torrance, California. There are many coastal beachfront cities in that area. I left these posters with each of them, explaining my concerns. I staked out the aunt's house and then contacted her on the phone. She promised to meet with me and my other 12-year-old daughter that she has not seen since 1993, but failed to show up. I noticed that she had a lot of visitors of various types of people, but nothing to indicate that my daughter was there. When Alyssa first ran away, I had contacted the aunt to inform her, asking for help should she go to her. There have been bad relations between my deceased wife's family and I over who should have custody of Barbara's children that I adopted and the daughter that we had since 1993. I had contacted the aunts in California and Oregon this year with my concerns that Alyssa might run away in an attempt to improve these relations should she do so, rather than her ending up on the streets. Alyssa has always done the things she talked about with little concern or forethought about the consequences. While Barbara was dying, the family was permitted to ask Barbara numerous times who she wanted to raise our children after her death until about a week before she died. Barbara consistently told them she wanted me to raise them due to her family's history of physical, sexual, drug, and alcohol abuse. I had five at home when she died. All four older male children graduated from high school, two from college, one from technical school. From 1993 to 1996, Barbara's family made numerous attempts to take the three youngest children by using Barbara's oldest child, asking me to let the girls attend their mother's funeral in Kansas, one aunt coming to Arizona, and numerous calls to Arizona Child Protective Services, all of which failed but caused a great deal of problems to a family with more than enough problems trying to get over the loss of a mother, wife, and best friend. It also opened the door for Barbara's two oldest to use the threat of CPS to get the things I had refused to let them have or do. During the period of time Barbara was going through various treatments and surgeries to save her life, I permitted her relatives to stay in our home. Marijuana became a problem because they brought it out around the children when I was in California making arrangements to move the family closer to UC Davis in Sacramento for chemotherapy. After moving to California, her surgeries and treatments were all failing and death was inevitable. Barbara asked me to look the other way, if her family would agree to not expose the children to marijuana. I agreed to this, knowing Barbara had little time left. Barbara told me that Lori has always had a serious addiction to marijuana, with a habit of usage similar to a smoker's habit of a pack a day. Therefore, she was growing it for her own use and to make a little money. The aunt in Torrance, California, has confirmed this to me several times, including most recently defending the usage of it not being any worse than the cigarettes that killed her sister Barbara. The only reason I'm bringing this up is in the event that their luck runs out and they get caught with my daughter Alyssa being with them. 
I do not want her to fall into the criminal system. Alyssa would most probably join in with them, because that is how she comprehends such a situation. In spite of my continued teachings of how the criminal system works based on my prior experience as a sworn deputy in Maricopa County, Arizona, she has also completed a D.A.R.E. program at school, but consistently failed to comprehend how she could be arrested for possession of marijuana just by being with friends who are using it. My other five understand this, including the 12-year-old who has walked away, turned it down, and chose other friends when exposed to it, except Alyssa who I punished for such acts. I am concerned for my daughter's welfare due to her mental impairment and susceptibility to strangers, because she is easily misled and far too trusting. My concerns are not just centered around her being arrested. All people like her are more susceptible and vulnerable to predators. My concerns as a parent continue to shift between hoping the police will pick her up for a crime versus not knowing where she is or whom she is with, and if she is all right. The criminal justice system will put her on a path she may never recover from. Our system is filled with such people. I pray we do not have a trade-off my learning her whereabouts in exchange for her falling into the criminal system. However, anything at this point would be better than not knowing. I know it is a long shot that she may be in Oregon, based on the fact that the aunt in California told me in April that she is going to Oregon to see Lori in July. Alyssa calling 60 miles from this aunt's house in California, which is en route to Torrance, and it's all I have left, other than waiting for a phone call. And the letter is signed, Michael Roy Turney. A few days later, he copied the letter he had written to the police department in Oregon and sent it to Detective Schoenfelder, along with the following note. I am enclosing a copy of the letters I sent to the Oregon police authorities, which sums up my trip to California searching for Alyssa. Once again, this information is to assist in my search for my daughter out of true concerns for her welfare due to her diagnosed mental condition and possibly prevent redundant work to allow your office to focus on more important tasks. Once again, if you receive any information you may not have time for or think is worth pursuing that you can share with me, please pass it on so I may follow up on it no matter how frivolous. Sincerely, Michael Roy Turney. And on July 25th, he writes another letter to Detective Schoenfelder, this time with additional concerns. I am enclosing copies of the descriptions given to me by two of Alyssa's co-workers and or supervisors of the tattooed Caucasian male coming into the jack-in-the-box until she ran away. It may not be significant at this time, but at this point, I cannot just stand by and wait for a phone call. I understand that at this point, it is just a runaway 17-year-old, but as a parent who knows his daughter better than anyone else, I cannot help but worry. From the written description given by Alyssa's friend Chris, I looked up the name Black Box in the phone book. I called the number on July 20, 2001, contacting a secretary or dispatcher. After describing this person, she recognized him, telling me that she would page him to call me. On July 24, 2001, I called again. On July 25, 2001, a man calling himself Paul Abbott called identifying himself as the person at the jack-in-the-box. He told me that he and several other employees, naming one as Jimmy, an older man, ate at jack-in-the-box, where he talked numerous times with Alyssa, stated that he did not remember the conversations or if Alyssa had talked about going to California, that she was very friendly, giving them special deals on their meals stated that he never talked alone with Alyssa, outside or anywhere. He stated that he saw the poster on the door with Alyssa's picture, and that they stopped coming in after that. I asked if he heard of anyone that might have given Alyssa a ride to California. He told me that all the guys were married and wouldn't do anything stupid like that. Mr. Abbott's verbal demeanor and skills were much different than I had expected from his physical description. He sounded very intelligent, presenting himself well with a very pleasant, salesman-like voice. I was told by Sandra at Paradise Valley High School that a company named Black Box worked on campus for the school. I also contacted Barbara at the Paradise Valley High School registrar, advising her that Alyssa was a runaway and had not yet returned, requesting that should anyone request her school records for another school in or out of state, that she would contact me. 
I did give her permission to release them, should Alyssa be with her mother's relatives and choose to finish school. No activity in Alyssa's savings account at Desert School's credit union and no word from any of her associates or friends. I have not been able to find out any more information about the second person. Alyssa's co-worker Chris described as someone Alyssa was leaving the job with for over an hour from time to time, without my permission and or knowledge. She was telling me that she had to work an hour longer, leaving with this person, then returning before I picked her up. There appears to be other incidents with males Alyssa had kept from me and or her boyfriend, in spite of my constantly scrutinizing her. Such acts of deception by Alyssa are not something new. In each of the past incidents, I discovered a person placed the idea in her mind, with few of them originating from Alyssa. In spite of my sharing her characteristic of being easily influenced with everyone I permitted her to spend any length of time with or spend the night with, including her supervisors at Jack in the Box, I checked the internet under registered sex offenders for a possible match on Paul Abbott. There was nothing. I am aware that all of this means nothing at this time, and may have nothing to do with my daughter running away or how she made it to Riverside, California. However, I am keeping a file in the event that anything adverse is discovered later. With Alyssa's condition, I still find it difficult to believe that she made it to Riverside without someone helping her. If you can use your resources to check out this person for any priors related to sex and or drug crimes, I would appreciate it. I know you cannot share this information with me, but should he come up clean, it would help me drop this area of my attempts to put together those events prior to my daughter leaving including who sold or gave her the last marijuana I caught her with, even if the marijuana incident is not related. This is something missing, related to how Alyssa made it to Riverside, California one week after she left, and or where she was during that week. I tutored Alyssa on many things that went beyond her schoolwork. She couldn't figure out a city bus route, and or had difficulty using a phone book to order a pizza, which is something I taught all of my other five children to include her 12-year-old sister. I have asked a number of Alyssa's friends and associates to provide me with written statements of any events they saw Alyssa do that showed her characteristic of being easily influenced and or misled and or anything Alyssa confided in them, such as what Julie told me. I am waiting for her written statement, which I will send to you for the record, because Alyssa did discuss her contacts with Paul Abbott and her relationship with her boyfriend John, which I know was not good and she was not loyal to him. I am including another list of the names and phone numbers found in Alyssa's yearbook. On this page, I also included a summary of what Julie told me. Julie also told me that Alyssa told her that she went outside to talk with the guy with the tattoos and how Alyssa was attracted to people like him. She used a name for these people, but I can't remember what it was. I do know that Alyssa and I had major disagreements about body piercing and tattoos, as with marijuana. She was the only of my six kids I had these problems with while they were under 18. I hope my letters do not offend you. They are not meant for any other reason than to make sure this information is gathered before it is lost due to the nature of time-dissipating memories and or details that may be of use should circumstances change in my runaway daughter's case. I lived with Alyssa for 14 and a half years. I know how vulnerable she is to serious physical harm if not understood and or under direct supervision. Even though she is 17 and less than one year away from having the right to do whatever she wants. Until then, she remains my responsibility, including searching for her. If you have any questions, please contact me. Sincerely, Michael R. Turney. Shortly after writing these letters, our father speaks with a Sergeant Wright. This is another member of the Phoenix Police Department that I don't have a lot of information on. However, there was a recorded phone conversation that was recovered from our home between our father and Sergeant Wright. The police report states, This is a long, rambling conversation and in response to apparent letters Mike Turney has sent to the chief's office, complaining about the handling of the investigation of his missing daughter. Mike complains about the difficulty he had in obtaining the phone number Alyssa reportedly called from and how the police did not help him. He explains that he had to sue the phone company in order to get this number and that the police should have told him he had that option. Mike talks about how Alyssa was being educated with her ADD learning disability, 
Mike says that the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children agrees with him that Alyssa should have been under this education plan. Mike says that Alyssa is endangered and that she is, quote, vulnerable to the streets. He states that he never expected the Phoenix Police Department to look for her, but he wanted their assistance in obtaining the phone number. Sergeant Wright explains the legal boundaries of obtaining phone numbers in non-criminal matters for law enforcement. Mike says this should change because the runaways, quote, are not coming back. Sergeant Wright corrects him and explains that this is not true, that most runaway juveniles are located shortly after their disappearance. Mike says that Alyssa is different. He states that Alyssa is, quote, too trusting and was mentally challenged. He makes the point by claiming Alyssa could not figure out a bus schedule or even use the phone book. He states that Alyssa had a, quote, abusive boyfriend. Sergeant Wright explains the star 57 option in case Alyssa should call again. Mike talks about Paul Abbott as a lead. He says that he is worried Alyssa will get arrested or might be forced into prostitution or white slavery. Mike makes the statement, quote, I'm not asking the police department to go out of their way to look for my daughter. I shouldn't have let her run away. Mike appears to grow emotional, saying, I just want my daughter back. As the summer was coming to an end and the next school year was imminent, I waited patiently for Alyssa to return. But the first day of school came and went without her. And soon after, I came home one day to find that Alyssa's pet ferret was gone. I screamed at my father with tears streaming down my face, demanding to know what he had done with it. He told me that he gave it away. He couldn't stand looking at it any longer and never wanted her to have it in the first place. And quickly after that, Alyssa's cat was gone too. My father told me it ran away. So much of Alyssa was falling away before my eyes, and I couldn't even see it. By October, our father had transferred all but $25 out of Alyssa's bank account and put it into mine. And in that same month, he sold his vehicle and replaced it with a nearly identical model. The police report reads, The vehicle was sold shortly after Alyssa was reported missing and replaced by a newer but practically identical truck. I didn't know about this duplicate truck until 2017 when one of the detectives that had worked on Alyssa's case told me, just one day before my in-person meeting with my father. So, of course, I asked him about this. But unfortunately, I didn't have the case records at this time, and I got confused as to which vehicle was supposed to be the duplicate, so he mostly just laughs off my semi-incorrect accusation. And honestly, I'm still confused. My records contain two different reports with conflicting makes, models, and years of the vehicle. But here's what he says when I ask him. So, I found out something interesting yesterday. What's that? That you had some type of duplicate truck. I had what? You had two trucks. You had two GMC Sierras. One was one was one year newer than the other. Really? Now that's a new one to me. Well, that's Where's what... it at? I could use it now. We traded for a nice motorized bicycle. Well, apparently you sold it, but they found it in Nevada or something. It's something about Rhett trying to steal you plates. Well, that's probably true about Rhett stealing your plates. He and his boyfriend. So you didn't have another truck? No. You only had the one white truck? That's all I had. You were there when I bought it. We will discuss the efforts taken by the police to recover this vehicle later in the podcast. But for now, the vehicle Alyssa was last seen in, the vehicle Alyssa was reportedly sexually abused in, is now out of the hands of Michael Turney. But this is just one of the countless questionable actions taken by him in relation to this case. The start of the school year had come and gone without Alyssa coming back, and then the holidays came. The first Thanksgiving and Christmas spent without Alyssa were so hard. Although my father and I continued to get along after Alyssa was gone and he had given me so many extra privileges, our relationship began to change. In certain aspects, he became so cold and distant. When he wasn't frantic about Alyssa, he spent most of his time in bed, watching movies, stating that he was sick. And when Thanksgiving came around, he told me if I wanted a turkey dinner, I'd have to cook it myself. Then the week before Christmas, he placed my presents under the tree unwrapped. 
When I saw them, I cried, and I snuck them into my room, wrapped them, and placed them back under the tree for Christmas morning. I've said it before, but I never realized how much Alyssa did for me, and it was really beginning to hit me that Alyssa might not be coming back. Next time on Voices for Justice. For example, when when you all decided to move, Many bad memories in this house. We need to move out of this house. Across the street. Yeah, and well, that was his justification. He would say, oh, "Well, I can watch the house and tell people, you know, about her being there." I mean, I know one Maybe real. Maybe I could just. Those kinds of people like to see their trophies or some memory of their trophies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, I, what it boils down to two for me is that it just, it really doesn't matter how it happened, what took place that led to it. Um, I don't even know if maybe, you know, there would be other people involved. Maybe he had help. All I know, all I know, all I feel within my being is that your father knows more. And when we were at that ZIA, you came up to me and you said, you know your dad killed your sister, right? Like, I, I don't, I mean, and it, it's possible that you were like, hi, hello, how are you? But that's no, what stuck in my it's mind. It's probably likely that I was just like, hey, I know your dad fucking killed her. Yeah, <laughs> well, was... and fair enough. Like, thank you for doing me that kindness. And I, I, I didn't remember what I said to you. I still don't remember, but you do. You remember me saying something back.